Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing pulmonary embolism. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All uh, guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello everyone, welcome back to uh, Take Orally. Uh, Jamie Thomas here, teaching fellow emergency medicine. And uh, I'm delighted to once again be joined by uh, Harry Pick, um, respiratory physician, registrar, and uh, research fellow. That's correct, yeah, thanks Jamie. Thank you for coming once again, Harry. Uh, and uh, we're now going to tackle, as we've already just been talking about before we started recording, but one of my nightmare diagnoses, uh, pulmonary embolism, or PE. Yes, yeah. Um, a difficult diagnosis one that doesn't always play fair as we're going to discuss yeah. and one not to be missed yeah. I think that's fair to say yeah so I think it, uh, a challenging diagnosis at times um, it's not always textbook as you read you know no. you don't always come in with the things you expect um, and it quite, has quite a high burden of disease for patients mm. significant morbidity mortality uh, and something not to be missed something to be considered whenever you're seeing patients that present through ED with sure. you know, chest pain shortness of breath collapse the things we're going to sure. discuss sure. yeah yeah, so I mean, whenever I say to a medical student to talk me about PE, they will mention uh, DVT, they will mention a uh, young lady on the pill, a recent long haul flight, yeah. um, a pleuritic chest pain, shortness of breath. They have a very barn door image in their mind, but I think that's not always the case. Yeah, no, so I think, I think probably half the time it is, but I think half the time it's probably something that creeps up on you. You're not necessarily thinking of it straight away, it's there in your differential, and then sort of hits you either because you find it by scanning them or you find it because they get worse and you have to find it uh, mm. or, or unfortunately they pass away and, and it's a post-mortem diagnosis which mm. uh, comes as a shock as well you know mm-hmm. so um, so here we're going to talk through um, some of the stuff I know about PE some of the stuff I've got together again since been asked to do this um, a lot of the stuff's taken from some of the most recent international guidelines so mm. I've got the BTS PE guideline from 2003 uh, the NICE VTE guidance from 2012 and the European Society of Cardiology guidance from 2014 along with the NUH local guidance sort of crammed in there for awesome. good effect. So, so a bit of evidence-based medicine. big evidence-based medicine yeah, we're doing. Yeah. So I suppose the first question is, ultimately most important, you know, what is a PE? What is pulmonary yeah. embolism? So, uh, so DVT and PE, so uh, deep vein thrombosis and pulmonary embolism, come under the, 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 the hat of venous thromboembolic disease. Uh, and that's basically uh, clots forming in your venous system, uh, either staying locally within your leg and causing signs and symptoms of DVT, or embolizing, traveling off to the lungs and causing their own problems there. Sure. Um, and uh, the three things needed really, even this is the sort of underlying uh, biological principle for, for clotting, so abnormal thrombosis, which is what DVT&P is, is, is ab- abnormal blood, ab- ab- abnormal flow, and abnormal vessels. So it's something within those three that's causing you to then have these problems. Verkov's triad. Verkov's triad, yes. Yes. Yeah, that's extra points they're doing. <laughs> um, so that triad, you generally have to have something within that triad that's causing you to then be predisposed to th- form a thrombus, either in the leg or, or in pulmonary embolism. Um, so uh, just a bit of background stats for you. Um, awesome. So presentations for PE, I think we all think of the symptomatic patient coming in with pleuritic chest pain after they've been on holiday to you know, some far-flung destination. Um, But actually, you know, quite a lot of PEs are asymptomatic now, uh, either being found uh, as an incidental finding on uh, the CT scans we're doing for more and more reasons, you know, cross-sectional imaging. uh, And the significance of those is debated, uh, especially if they're small, sub-segmental, whether we need to do anything about them or not. Mm. Um, Symptomatic ones that we we look out for and we catch. Uh, But then actually people just dying from their PEs and it being a diagnosis afterwards you know sure. um, so there's a study in 2004 that uh, across six EU countries found there were 317,000 deaths from PE in a single year wow 34% of those presented as a sudden fatal PE to medical services okay. uh, 60% just under 60% were a post-mortem diagnosis mm. and only 7% of those that died those 370 died were a diagnosis made pre-mortem so they okay. were diagnosed and treated so actually you're looking at over 90% of people with PEs who died in that cohort presented either too late or died and then were found afterwards. So just need to be aware that we don't always pick it up and it should be there in the back of your mind, something to think about. Sure. One of the things that struck me as well when I was reading through some of the guidance was, um, I'm not sure about you, Jamie, but I think of it as a condition that's usually people, I think of it most often in middle age, yeah. not particularly elderly patients who come in with pleuritic chest pain who've been away or they're on the pill or something else. But actually, the risk of PE increases uh, with every decade. Uh, okay. 
If you're under 40, you have a lower risk than anyone over 40. But for every decade after that, your risk doubles. So if you're 50, your risk is twice that of a 40-year-old. If you're 60, it's four times that of a 40-year-old. If you're 70, it's you know, eight times that of a 40-year-old. Of a so actually, wow. as you get older, the risk is higher. And I think that's something that surprised me. And yeah. looking back on the cases where I've missed PE or I've not considered it, it probably is those more elderly patients who come in, multiple non-specific complaints, sure. where actually they have a higher risk. Um, so it's something to just bear in your mind. Is that because, I mean, do we know? Is that because the, as you get older, you're more likely to maybe develop AF, other arrhythmias, yeah. or you're more um, sedentary? Is it is all those sorts of things? So I think it's probably multifactorial, you yeah. know, a combination of abnormal vessel, abnormal flow, abnormal yeah. blood, from the reasons you've just said. So mm. uh, uh, I, think, I think there's no definite reason, but there's definitely that association from wow. cohort studies. Mm. Um, so uh, moving on for me to talk, talk about the risk factors uh, uh, the way I classify them is uh, patient related and they're usually permanent risk factors sure. and then the setting related which are usually temporary sure. um, so if you're looking at patient related it's things like age yep. uh, their comorbidities you know, the non-reversible ones such as malignancy mm. uh, and then also history personal or family history of DVT or PE yeah and then looking at the sort of setting related, these are the usually temporary things. So they've had lower limb surgery within the last four weeks. Uh, they've been involved in a trauma, uh, immobility resulting from either of those, uh, pregnancy, oral contraceptive pill, HRT. Um, and so pregnancy was interesting for me. I mean, you know, you always know there's an increased risk, you know, sure, yeah. in the uh, peripartum, uh, either antenatally, postnatally. A pregnant woman who's just delivered is 60 times more at risk of PE than a non-pregnant woman the three months after her uh, delivery oh. so that's really you know quite a large big... risk even afterwards for three yeah, months yeah yeah and it's because of the uh, activation of cytokines inflammatory cascade you know body repair hormone changes all of those things that are going on yeah. in that postpartum period uh, but yeah 60 times increased risk in the three months following their delivery so shows the value of a very good history doesn't yeah, it and, yeah. and thinking these things and it's not always something you'd think of if you know someone comes in short of breath and they're you know three months is 12 weeks they're 10 weeks down the road from their delivery you, mm. not something you're generally asking no. women if they haven't got a baby with them or a partner you know, you know there's not signs of being yeah. in that nursing period so it's something you should always ask i think something we probably miss excellent okay yeah. so um so you, we've got our risk factors that we're thinking about yep. here as well. Yep. Um, so I suppose, shall we sort of work on towards the the um, presentation of our yep. patient? Because, you know, I really wish they would walk in with PE written on their forehead. <laughs> yeah. as, I've often say, yeah. as I've often said on podcasts, it'd be great if they walked in with a diagnosis. And sometimes they do. They've Googled themselves and they've said, I've got this. But uh, have you got any uh, data there about, you know, yeah. the, the presentations of, of patients with PE? Yeah, so it's interesting. Um, so obviously your clinical approach, these patients, ED, uh, especially if you ask anything we're doing in medicine, A, B, C, D, E at the forefront, forefront of your mind, you know, adverse features, respond, diagnose appropriately. Once you've got past your A, B, C, D, E and you're happy that you've got the time, the luxury to talk to them, uh, uh, you're looking for those clinical features. And uh, there's a study uh, done by Pollock and colleagues in 2011, looked at pulmonary embolism diagnoses in patients presenting to ED. And so they had just under 2,000 patients who were diagnosed with PE and compared them with 500 who didn't have PE. And uh, unfortunately, they don't always come in with what you want them to. <laughs> so in that study, they showed that uh, only 50% of patients with a confirmed diagnosis of PE presented with dyspnea, so shortness of breath. So that was their reason for coming that in, was their reason short for of breath. Yeah. yeah. Only 40% of them presented with pleuritic chest pain. 25% uh, uh, of them presented with signs or symptoms of DVT. 8% of them presented with hemopsis. And 6% of them with syncope. And actually those uh, specific uh, clinical presentations taken in isolation for a diagnosis of PE have a very poor sensitivity and specificity. Um, mm. And I think that's probably counterintuitive to what you and I think of when we think of PE. You know, you yeah. think of that textbook definition of someone mm. who's been on holiday or on the oral contraceptive pill, walking in with this agonizing pleurotic chest pain and they're panting and their sats are low and then, you know. Big you, swollen calf and, and there, it's all there together, isn't it? There, yeah. Yep. Ready to accept your professorship from the local <laughs> medical school for an excellent <laughs> diagnosis. But actually, the, the natural history is they don't present with those things. Yeah. Uh, and that's what makes um, the clinical prediction rules that we use within medicine sure. for PE mm. uh, even more valuable. And we'll come on to talk about those. Sure. Um, and I suppose one of the things in my mind I do, so I've taken the history, uh, I've asked about those clinical features, I'm then trying to think about risk factors. So I'm asking the questions both to satisfy the uh, clinical risk prediction scores that we're going to talk about, but also to see if there's any underlying pathology that we know of. Sure. Uh, I suppose the one in my, my mind is trying to, trying to think about 
from their presentation, from what they told me, I think it might be a PE. Mm. How am I going to approach this patient and what do I need to do them immediately and what can I wait to do? And then I suppose there it's, it's looking to see whether it can be classified as what we call a massive PE or mm. a sub-massive PE. So massive PE, as you'll know, is somebody who's very unwell with their pulmonary embolism. They've probably got evidence of right heart strain if you do an echocardiogram or a CT, but their hallmark is they prevent with persistent um, uh, shock, you know, uh, hypertension. And, and the national, international guidelines say that you have to have a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 for more than 15 minutes. And if you're getting into that situation or they're peri-arrest or yeah. they've arrested, mm. then you need to treat them as a, a massive PE. You need to be thinking about thrombolysis and also an urgent imaging of some sort, whether that be a bedside echocardiogram if they're not stable enough or a CTPA if they are, mm. uh, and then proceeding down that avenue. And then the other side of that is someone with a submassive PE who has got the symptoms we've described or maybe a non-specific presentation, um, but they're not unwell acutely they don't need immediate intervention within the next sort of 10 15 30 minutes you've got a bit more time to work out what's There's going hemodynamic on. stability basically exactly yeah, yeah. That's, and that's the, that's the, the hallmark cardiorespiratory stability yeah, yeah exactly okay um so i mean um whenever i talk to students as well i mean there are some ecg features that yeah. you can see in, in pe um yeah. as well and and students always you can tell you know if they've done a bit of reading jump up and go you know um s1 q3 t3 yes yeah um it's rubbish isn't yes it? it is yeah so it's the ecg uh the commonest abnormality in pulmonary embolism is just the sinus tachycardia yes yeah. so 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 yeah again take that into account um you can get um non-specific st and t wave changes uh and often uh either a left or right bundle branch block more commonly a left but any of those features uh, i've seen patients with ST elevation that have turned out to be pulmonary embolisms, ST depression. Mm. Um, so it's part of the pathology, pathophysiology of pulmonary embolisms. If you've, if you've got a large PE, um, you get significant uh, back pressure on your right ventricle. And there is evidence that even people with patent coronary arteries can have uh, right ventricular myocardial infarction as a consequence of their pulmonary embolism. Sure. So therefore they can get ST changes that are associated with that as well as the, the, the pulmonary embolism itself. Uh, and then that then complicates management and their, their outcome for that is, is normally very poor. Sure. Um, so we've taken our history. Yep. We're, we're thinking PE. There's yes. a little voice in the back of yeah. our mind. I remember that podcast I listened yeah. to when I was at med school yeah. from, with Harry. Yeah. Um, and so our clinical suspicion is up, but we've, we've got some um, stratification tools, haven't yes. we, brilliantly. Yes. So shall we talk about them a bit now? Yeah, so uh, the, the most commonly used, most widely known is, will be the Wells score. Mm. Uh, and there's, there's several versions of it now. Um, so initially developed for DVT, and then another version for PE, and then there were the simplified versions for both DVT and PE. So the old Wells score used to be a, a three level score which gave you a score based on risk factors and presenting features of either low probability medium probability or high probability fortunately for people like me it's been simplified so <laughs> it's now and people two, like me yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's now a two level score uh, where you either are low probability or high probability uh, and we'll come on to what that means for you in the long run um, but the two level world score is looking for clinical features but also uh, risk factors which would then push you down an avenue of sure. QP. Um, so it's looking for clinical signs of a DVT uh, which would score you three points. Uh, the P being the most likely diagnosis. It's not worded quite like that. It says an alternative diagnosis is not as likely as PE, which just yeah. conf it's just double negative city. It confuses the hell out of me. Yeah, I've seen it. it. It's, it's equal or most yeah, likely yeah, PE. Yeah, or so. Yeah. so it's that clinician's gestalt, isn't yeah. it? You know, that I that, think this is... Yeah. And actually, in the papers where they validated these, that is the most... Uh, that is the, the factor that's got the most intra-observer discrepancy. Okay. So when we look comparing two people looking at the same patient, mm. the bit where there is the biggest variation in what people call is it the most likely diagnosis or not for PE is that scoring of someone thinking sure. it's more likely or less likely. Sure. Uh, but that gets you three points if you think PE is the most likely diagnosis. So it scores the most. Yeah, exactly. That's well, interesting. Yeah, that, yeah. Yeah. So your gut, your gut there, you know, nothing else <laughs> saying that something else. I don't know about you, sorry to interrupt, but I think yeah. uh, I've seen it as well. People who maybe haven't thought of PE, if, you, if they're telling their history, if somebody else goes, oh, what about PE? Oh yeah, now you've mentioned PE and it yeah. is a, it's difficult, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Uh, I, I would put PE on the bottom of most of my presentations to mm. ED for that sort of category in terms of chest pain, shortness mm. of breath, syncope, hemoptysis, 
you know, PE would be there for most of them. Mm. And then anything that you can't explain, I'd stick PE on there as well. Because it's just <laughs> one of those buggers that comes and gets you. From there, right? <laughs> um, so, so science of DVT gives you three. PE most likely gives you three. A heart rate of over 110 gives you one and a half. Immobility for greater than three days or surgery within four weeks gives you one and a half. A previous episode of venous thromboembolism, so DVT or PE gives you one and a half. Hemoptysis one and a history of malignancy one. Within the malignancy, it's if they're on palliative treatment, so they've not had any intervention, they're on active treatment at that moment in time, or they've been treated but within six months. Okay. So if you've got somebody who's had breast cancer 10 years ago and they're in remission, that wouldn't count. If you've got somebody who's you know, uh, coming from nursing home who's actually got lung cancer but not for any active intervention, that would. Sure. Uh, and you're adding those up, and if you've got a score of less than four, it says that P is unlikely, and you've got less than 10% probability of having a PE subsequently if you're less than four sure and a score of four or more makes PE likely and mm. you've got a 70% chance of having a PE okay. if you score that higher so you've got a less than 10% chance yeah. you've got a 70% uh, chance on the other okay. exactly yeah and that sort of informs what you need to do next sure so this is where it gets interesting <laughs> so the Wells score would say uh, if you've got a score of less than four PE is unlikely you should progress to do a D-dimer sure D dimer is the bane of every medical acute oh, medic, yes. emergency medic's life. Um, Who is ordered the D dimer? Yeah, <laughs> is a, is a well, well known uh, complaint. Um, so, D dimer, as you'll know, uh, is a non specific test, but it has got a very good negative predictive value in pulmonary embolism or venous thromboembolism embolism in, in general. Um, so, if I stub my toe, my D dimer will go up. If I have a few too many beers, my D dimer will go up. If I have a stroke, my D dimer will go up. If I have an infection, it will go up. If I have thromboembolism, it will go up. Um, but a negative D-dimer in the context of suspected VT is very reassuring. And actually, the probability of you having a pulmonary embolism, if you are low probability and have a negative D-dimer, is less than one in a, in a couple of million, actually. It's, it's very, very low. So it's very reassuring. Unfortunately, if they have a positive D-dimer because they've actually got a chest infection, you then end up having to do a scan of some sort to confirm or refute that diagnosis in the low-risk patients or low severity, unlikely. And I think we're still, I mean, you, you'll know more about me than this, but we're still at this stage of it's either negative or positive, the D-dimer. I mean, so even if it's one over the upper limit, yeah. that is a positive. Is, is that still where we're well, at? Still, yeah. So, so, so you have to be, you have to take into account that the D-dimer was developed and validated in a cohort and 500 or 0.5, depending on the system you're using, was taken as a figure because it gives you the best sensitivity and specificity and negative predictive value. So 501 is still by the textbook a positive. And I've had this conversation with many a doctor before saying, well, it's only 503, it's nearly negative, let's kick them out. And actually, no, it's positive for a reason, they still have a risk. And there isn't any quantification between it being 503, 5,003, 50,003 between their likelihood of PE. Mm. In practice, the patients who have the highest D-dimers nearly always have a VTE and or some underlying diagnosis sure. of malignancy. Um, but I've seen people who've had negative D-dimers who then have had gone on to have a positive scan because of clinical suspicion. Sure. And I've seen people with borderline D-dimers who then, so, so the absolute value isn't as, as important as above or below your cutoff. Sure. And for those people with a score of greater than four, doing a D-dimer is worthless. Um, let us save the trust some money um, and send them for a scan. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I, read a, I read a paper that if you have um, people with a PE yeah. who have um, had uh, high wells above four, yeah. um, 5% of those patients will have a negative oh, at least, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd say that reflects my clinical practice as well. So actually, you've got a very high risk group. Like you said, 70%, you've got this high risk group, and 5% of them will actually have a negative yeah. D-dimer. So if you've got that high wells, you've got that suspicion doing the D-dimer, A is you know, an unnecessary waste of money. Yeah. Um, but actually, you're putting some patients at danger because but you could be falsely reassured. Exactly, exactly. So, so it doesn't add anything to your diagnosis. It's got no benefit. And if you do get it and you're reassured and discharged, and seven out of 10 of those people will have a pain, may collapse or have further sure. yeah, uh, illness because of it. Um, and um, so, so the interesting thing for me is, um, I don't know whether you've heard of the PERC rule. I have, yes. Yeah, so I like the PERC rule. Because it means I don't have to do things to patients, which is even better. <laughs> so if you've got someone who's low probability, um, so low risk, either on the Wells score or from your own clinical judgments, sure. uh, you could uh, apply the PERC rule to them. And mm. if they have none of the PERC features, so if they're all negative, 
uh, you can discharge them without any further investigation. So that's PERC, P-E-R-C. That's right, yeah. Mm. So the PERC uh, includes, um, so to be negative, you have to be age under 50 years, a heart rate of less than 100, SATs of greater than 95, no hemopsis, not taking the oral contraceptive or HRT, no surgery or trauma in the preceding four weeks, no venous thromboembolism history, and no clinical signs of DVT. So for me, um, like you say about the ambulatory care patients, if you're in ambulatory care, you've got someone who's low suspicion, they've probably got a viral chest infection, some pleuritic chest pain, low risk on their wells. You do the perk, they're 40, they've got those other signs that are fine. No need to send off a D-dimer, no need to scan them, reassure them, send them home. They've got less than a 1% risk of then having a pulmonary embolism and becoming clinically significant. So if they're low wells and also zero on the perk, Brilliant. That's somebody you can uh, not investigate further, reassure, obviously give them safety netting advice, sure. counsel them that things deteriorate or, or persist, they should go back and see somebody. But you can be relatively reassured by that. Okay. Uh, but like you said, you only need one of those. You failed the perk. And therefore you need to go back to doing a D-dimer if they're low risk. Well, they should be low risk, so doing sure. a D-dimer and investigating them further. Sure. So either if we've got our patient who was low wells, but their D-dimer's positive, or yep. they're high wells, they, they, you know, um, so we're now suspicious of PE, yep. how are we going to confirm our diagnosis? Yep. So, so it's, a, it's a good question. So uh, imaging is the answer. And there's the old CTPA versus VQ. So mm. CTPA uh, is a CT pulmonary angiogram or angiography, and uh, VQ is ventilation perfusion scan. Uh, and um, the main difference is availability in and out mm. of hours, uh, but also uh, radiation exposure. Sure. Um, so the majority of patients you'll encounter will end up having a CTPA. Mm. Usually because of availability of the scan, clinician preference, because it also helps you think about other things if it's not a PE, uh, and also because there isn't a reason not to do it, if that makes sense. Um, uh, so uh, CTPA, they normally need a decent-sized cannula and a decent-sized vein. Uh, it's a, a, a contrast media that's administered, the phase of the CT that catches the pulmonary arteries, and then you can see whether there's any filling defects on that. Normally takes about 15 minutes to type in your request, an hour or so to, to happen, depending on which site you're at. Uh, maybe a couple more hours if you're in ED, and more, can be, yep. more hours than that if you're on the medical wards. Uh, and then maybe an hour, a half an hour, an hour to get a report back. Mm. VQ tends to be something that you bring patients back for in working hours, so mm. Monday to Friday, nine to five. They often have to have a couple of days of treatment prior to that. Sure. But it's a good, so the VQ is a good alternative for people who've got a contrast allergy, if they've got renal impairments, if they're young with a normal chest X-ray because they can get a lot, lot lower um, uh, radiation dose. It's the preferred investigation in pregnancy. It's also something to think about in people with hematological malignancies like myeloma, paraproteinemia, because there's always a risk with those patients of giving them contrast that they've already got impaired renal function from their myeloma that you then knock their kidneys off. So it's something to think about for them. Mm. Um, and in terms of radiation, CTPA uh, conventional, the newer ones, is about two to six millisieverts. Uh, and the VQ scan, depending on whether you've got to do the ventilation side of it, is between 0.6 and one millisieverts. So it's a Mm. bit of a radiation difference depends on the age of the patient if you've got a 25 year old who you're going to be doing a CTP on that's not an insubstantial amount of radiation for someone who's got another 60 years to yeah. feel the effects of that if there's someone who's 80 uh, yeah. it's probably less of a problem in terms of their lifetime risk of malignancy after that yeah. but it's something to have at the back of your mind to think about Yeah, the majority of people will have a CTPA yeah I suppose it's worth thinking if you have a young lady, breast tissue, exposure to radiation, yep. etc. Yeah. And actually I've got some notes on pregnancy, so we'll talk about that at the end of the sure. come on and, and go over that. And specifically for pregnancy, VQ versus CTPA, and I'll go through some of the radiation awesome. stuff that comes yeah. with that as well. I mean, you mentioned doing a chest x-ray for yep. VQ. I think, I mean, chest x-ray for me, I, I mean, for this trust here at NUH, um, the radiologist here in, in AD want a, a chest x-ray before we even do yeah. the CTPA but I, I find that's very useful even if I haven't thought about PE if say you know uh, um, you've got a history of asthma or COPD so that's my primary thing but if you've got a clear uh, chest x-ray if you have got clear evidence that you're desaturating if there's a big AA gradient say on your ABG yeah yeah but I'm not seeing it on a chest x-ray that then PE then comes into yeah. my mind as well if it hasn't been there before yeah, it's, all, it's almost a prompt, isn't it? And I yeah. think I think in your workup, if anybody that presents with shortness of breath, chest pain, 
your investigations are your usual bloods, FBC, UR, UE, CRP, LFTs, uh, things you need to be able to assess them, but also then manage them safely. ECG, doing the SATs, doing their peak flow, doing the chest x-ray, you know, for me, it goes without saying, as a, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's almost as if, if they haven't got a chest x-ray, they're not really going to be seen by a respiratory <laughs> doctor yet. But um, yeah, it's, it, it's definitely needed. Yeah. And it also gives you that weight to say to when you're talking to a radiologist at 3 a.m. to say, I really want a CTPA now because of this, this, this. When you say, actually, the x-ray is completely normal, there is nothing to see on it. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives you that extra weight, as does actually having an area of wedge-shaped infarct on an x-ray, you know, some consolidation like a pneumonia, but it's a very distinct triangular pattern. Sure tapering uh, in towards the medial aspect and out towards the, the lateral uh, just gives you that uh, you know evidence to then say PE let's get crack on and, and, and like you say angst is an aid memoir doesn't it you know someone who you think might have a chest infection oh their x-ray is completely normal what else would give them that with a completely normal x-ray and it just helps you to start the thought process I've only ever seen wedge infarct once yes. and they did have a PE though yes. I was very proud of that yeah, point yeah. Um, and I think just before we move on to the management PE, that's talking about the SATs. And I, I mentioned it before on, on an asthma podcast. Um, patient comes in with shortness of breath. They sit on a trolley in A&E or on a ward for hours and hours and hours. Of course, you know, their SATs could very well be normal. Get these patients up, put the SATs probe on them, walk them a bit, see are their SATs still okay after just walking a few yards, you know. That, I think that's very useful diagnostically. Yeah, it's, it's something I routinely do, uh, pulmonary embolism sp- patients, but uh, anyone who's coming through an ambulatory care area or acute medicine, you're, you're umming and ahhing about whether it's safe to send them home or whether they need admitting. You know, if there's no other um, adverse risk factors or adverse signs, actually just get them to do a couple of lengths of the, of the, of the corridor with the SATS machine, either with yourself or uh, a friendly nurse, if you, if you can rope one in to do it, um, just to see whether they desat or not. It just gives you a nice indicator of, you know whether they can safely go home or whether they need to stay in for some more sure. investigation. And, and and like you say, if you've been sat on a trolley in ED, you know middle of winter, been there three hours, fifty nine minutes, so you're trying to make a decision. You know it's it's you know got to get in and Absolutely. find out what's going on. Absolutely. Um, so um, I think it's also worth pointing at this point here in our um, emergency department as well. If we have booked the scan, we're thinking PE. It's on top diagnosis now. Um, if we have booked the scan, we also treat. So they've had their anoxaparin dose yeah. before they go and have the scan because they can be waiting for a while. Yeah. And that's certainly something we do here in the emergency yeah. department to treat beforehand. So, so the national guidelines are, um, if they are hemodynamic compromised, obviously get on and treat, confirm diagnosis, anticoagulate, thrombolize. If they are suspected, um, then there are options about that. Mm. And I can see why people take the pragmatic approach of giving the anticoagulation versus not. Um, the guidelines are if you're if you're going to have the CTPA within four hours, then you can wait, um, and you don't have to give uh, anticoagulation. If it's going to be four hours or longer, you should anticoagulate and then let them have the scan. Mm-hmm. And often, like you say, busy ED departments, wards, it often is on the borderline of four hours or isn't going to happen. You're not sure. It's probably safest in the overwhelming majority of people to give the anticoagulation. Sure. You know, a single dose of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram of amoxaparin is what we used locally. Uh, and the risk with that are relatively relatively small. Um, the only thing, you know, take your usual history in terms of bleeding risk. So have they had a recent GI bleed? Is there any intracranial pathology? Are they on concurrent anticoagulants? You know, those sorts of things that you just need to be thinking about. Have they had recent surgery within a couple of weeks? Just to make sure you're not gonna cause more harm than good. In the overwhelming majority, the best thing to do is give them the treatment and wait for the scan. Awesome. Um, so now moving on then to the management of, of PE. Yes. The the, uh, the key bit, really. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's really divided up, I suppose, into the the presentation of the patient. So yeah. whether they have, as we've already talked about, is yeah. it a massive, is it peri-arrest or yeah. the inner-arrest versus yeah. this sub-massive group? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so you've got your confirmed diagnosis by whichever route you've, you've got to that. So you know you've got a PE. Um, so uh, something quite useful to do uh, is calculate uh, uh, an SPESI score, so P-E-S-I. And so that's the simplified PESI score. And that gives you a indication of their likely prognosis. And that's based on um, age, whether they've got malignant, uh, a cancer diagnosis, uh, heart failure or uh, chronic lung disease, a heart rate of greater than 110 systolic blood pressure of less than 100 and arterial saturations of less than 90. And if you score zero on that, you have a 1% 30-day mortality. And if you score greater than one, you have a 10 to 11% 30-day mortality. 
And the benefit for that is if you're in the emergency department, you've got a confirmed diagnosis, there's no other adverse features, they score a zero on their SPESI, they should be, there's also clinical judgment comes into this, appropriate for anticoagulation and outpatient management and follow-up. Whereas if they score one or more, they'd be the patients you'd want to admit to, to medicine sure. uh, to be reviewed and managed and their anticoagulation started. Sure. So going back to what you're saying about classifying the patients and their management. So firstly, let's take massive PE. So you've got someone who's got uh, evidence of cardiorespiratory compromise, hemodynamic instability, systolic blood pressure less than 90, peri-arrest or having an arrest. Uh, the guidelines would say um, decent bilateral IV access, a to E assessments, uh, supplemental oxygen. Um, if needed, they can be intubated and ventilated. But actually, a lot of the evidence says that doing that causes instability. So there's a problem with giving the anaesthetic drugs you need to intubate, which will come to hemodynamic compromise. Uh, it's across all conditions. But there's an added, uh, when you're ventilating, the changes in intrathoracic pressure associated with that can actually worsen the mm. decompensation, uh, the RV strain, and it can actually cause them more harm than good. In the overwhelming majority, giving supplemental high flow oxygen is often enough as a holding measure to then see them through to whatever treatment they need to keep their SATs above 92, 94. Um, IV fluid challenge is something I've seen people do differently in, the, in these patients. The old model used to be you gave quite a lot of fluid quite quickly to try and help boost their cardiac pressures and see whether that would help. Actually, more recent evidence shows that over a litre of fluid can be harmful. So the guidelines currently say give 500 mils as a stat bolus over sort of 10 or 15 minutes. See if you can bring their blood pressure up, help with their contractility, help with their stability, but actually more than that probably isn't necessary. And then there's always things like vasopressors um, if you've got persistent hemodynamic compromise. Uh, most commonly is noradrenaline. There is evidence for dibutamine or, or dopamine infusions as well, but noradrenaline, the one we're most familiar with. Uh, and then the real thing they need is reperfusion therapy uh, as soon as possible if they're in that category. So the one we will be most familiar with is thrombolysis, mm -hmm. which will be pharmacological thrombolysis. Oh yeah. Usually has to be given through a relatively large uh, cannula or central line if possible. Although they don't like putting central lines in non-compressible places. Um, so a large cannula usually suffices. You often need a couple because you have to run heparin along through with the alteplase. Um, and alteplase is what we use locally. It's it the is, most, yeah. uh, most commonly used tissue plasminogen activator. Uh, and the dose of that depends on whether they've got imminent cardiac arrest or in cardiac arrest or whether they're just hemodynamically unstable. Your local trust guidelines will tell you the exact doses. It's between 10 and 50 milligrams as a bolus followed by an infusion uh, alongside IV heparin, usually. And uh, quite interestingly, the national guidelines and the local guidelines all say that we should try and consent patients to thrombolysis. Mm. Um, so we should, wherever possible, approach them, explain the risks and benefits and then get their permission whether that's verbally or on a signed consent form, which I think is actually something easier said than done. Very much so. In the situation. Very patient. Yeah. yeah, and often maybe actually uh, consent by proxy, so speaking to a family member mm. who can, you know, agree to treatment, although if they disagree, we'll probably crack on and give it anyway. <laughs> you know, the ethics around that, uh, we can discuss another time. Um, but interestingly, the, the quoted risk of intracranial hemorrhage is more than one in 100, but less than one in 1,000. Okay. So it's probably more like one in 200, the risk of intracranial hemorrhage, somewhere along that. And the risk of significant GI bleed is uh, probably greater than one in 100, but less than one in 10. So it's probably around a one in 20, one in 30 risk of GI bleed with thrombolysis. Mm -hmm. So that's just something to have in your back of your mind. You know, Yes, it's a PE, well, it might be a PE. Yes, confirmed on ECHO or urgent CTBA. I'm gonna give this, hopefully make them better, but there is the risk for other complications. Mm -hmm. And the things to consider when th trying to think about thrombolysis, the absolute contraindications are uh, hemorrhagic stroke, an ischemic scope within six months, uh, CNS trauma or malignancy, recent trauma surgery or head injury, and that's defined as less than three weeks, a significant GI bleed within the last three months or any bleeding disorder. And I'd probably put into that uncontrolled uh, coagulation disorder due to uh, one of the pharmacological agents. So vitamin K antagonists, direct oral anticoagulants, a lot of people would avoid thrombolizing those sorts of patients. In stroke now, they are starting to thrombolize it in studies, patients who are on oral anticoagulants to try and get the evidence to say that it's safe. But at the moment, we don't have that for P and it's not a licensed indication. Sure. A lot of the other things that you think about as sort of relative contraindications is at physician discretion. 
Um, so that's things like you, you know, uh, surgery longer than six weeks ago or uh, abdominal wounds, you know, th those sorts of things where you just, mm -hmm. you'd second guess yourself a little. The one that isn't down on here, interestingly, is thrombocytopenia, but I suppose it comes under bleeding disorders and anything under 70, I'd probably be hesitant. I'd definitely be speaking to a haematologist for anything under 100, just to say, there's this patient, you know, I want to thrombolize them. What do you think about this? What's sure. your advice? Just to, sure. one, protect yourself, but also protect the patient. Uh, and interestingly, when you give thrombolysis, uh, the hemodynamic effects from giving that, so re re resolution of the hypovolemia or, hi or hemodynamic instability, will last about two to three days, but there's no sustained effects beyond seven days. Uh, and the greatest benefit to giving thrombolysis is giving it within the first 48 hours after symptom onset. Okay. But you can give it up to uh, 14 days later. So within the first 14 days. So if you've got that patient who comes in and says, oh, I flew home, I've got crushing pain, it's been there for six hours, they've got a low BP, they've got a PE, they will get the basis benefit given straight away. But if you've got someone who comes in and says, I flew home two weeks ago, I've had this niggling pain since then, I've been a bit short of breath, actually they've got a massive PE, as long as it's within the first couple of weeks, you can still, still give them. Okay. According to the guidelines, obviously, if you've got someone who's in cardiac arrest and you've got nothing to lose, majority of people would give thrombolysis as a last ditch. If you are in that arrest situation and you've given thrombolysis, the resuscitation council guideline would be that you continue resuscitation for at least 60 minutes yeah. to give thrombolysis chance to work and to make sure you know, you're know you not stopping yeah. it. So in A&E, that's when we get the Lucas machine out yes. um, because otherwise getting staff to do an hours of CPR yes. is a, They need to get to the gym for a few days. Yeah, they, they yeah. don't really. But um, yeah, um, I remember the, the last um, arrest due to PE and, and um, it is, you know, alter plays when you say anticoagulate it, anticoagulate it, the blood is like water afterwards because yes. we were yeah. cannulating afterwards. But um, yeah. yeah, the Lucas for an hour. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 uh, and one of the relative contraindications, as you've alluded to, is, is, is uh, lines, central lines mm. or, or, or non-compressible sites of trauma um, because like you say, it, it just pours out if, mm. you, if you have it. Uh, and one of the things to always do, uh, just a practical tip, is try and pop in a catheter before you give them thrombolysis. So a urinary catheter, um, just because if you're putting it afterwards, there's a risk of trauma. And obviously, you're going to want to monitor their hemodynamic sure. status. You don't want to know what their kidneys are doing, especially if you, you know, had to give them contrast for a CT. They've had a prolonged period of hypotension. You'd always be worrying about their, their kidneys as well. So you want to see what their urine output is. But try and do that. Don't let it stop thrombolysis. <laughs> but if you can crack on and get yeah. it in, uh, in early in the assessment, it does help Brilliant. in terms of not causing traumatic bleeding, hematuria. Sure. And so uh, another, another options, uh, depending on local availability, is either local catheter-directed thrombolysis, so uh, central access, normally through a femoral artery uh, or vein, getting up to, uh, uh, femoral vein is, getting up to uh, the site of the em embolism and then giving a locally administered thrombolytic agent. Some trusts you have availability, sometimes it's within working hours of interventional radiology, other trusts there's no access to that mm. sort of thing. So that will be very much up to your local service. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's always surgical embolectomy. So uh, thoracic, cardiothoracic surgeons cracking the chest, going in and uh, removing the clot surgically. Tends to be done in patients who have significant contraindications to thrombolysis, but who are well enough to undergo surgery. And actually, uh, if you talk to uh, the surgeons who perform this procedure, it's not a particularly complicated procedure for them. And I was quite surprised to learn that the perioperative mortality for that procedure is only about 6%. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. It's not something I think we'd always consider. No. Uh, it's not something that's offered locally, but if you're in one of the large centres, you know, Patworth, something like that, surgical embolectomy is probably done a bit more often than we do it here. You know, Sheffield, I think, offer a service for it. But if you've got somebody who's got a large, you know, intracranial tumour coming with a PE and they need intervention, you know, something to think about that you mm. can consider, talk to local specialists, get some advice. Uh, so moving on to yes. our submassive so PE now. Submassive PE, really the staple of our, our, our work. You know, much higher proportion of our patients have submassive PEs compared to you know, the massive PEs that need thrombolysis. And the mainstay in submassive PE is anticoagulation. Yeah. Uh, uh, and uh, in the most part, that initially is with uh, a low molecular weight subcut. Um, so minoxaparine locally. Uh, dose of 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Um, the uh, difference with that is if you have people who are very obese or if you have pregnant ladies, they often give a one milligram BD dosing of that just to spread out so you don't get peaks and troughs. And if you're pregnant, it's based on your pre-pregnancy weight. Yeah, so it's your booking weight rather than your 40-week. <laughs> yes, we put on a little bit of extra baby yeah. weight. weight. Uh, 
Um, and so traditionally, uh, vitamin K antagonists, so warfarin, have been the mainstay of anticoagulation, both for DVT and PE, mm. uh, with the inherent benefits and risks of warfarin. So uh, benefit is we know a lot about it. We've used it for a long time. Mm. Uh, disadvantages, as you'll know, multiple interactions, mm. difficult dosing, variable dosing between patients but within patients, mm. uh, lots of potential problems with side effects and interactions and monitoring for patients in the period of time they need to carry on with that anticoagulation. Uh, and also the need for bridging therapy, so you'd have to be on your noxaparin to keep your therapeutic until your RNRs were therapeutic for uh, you know, two consecutive days or for longer than five days or over the target INR. Been a while since I've dosed any warfarin. Pass that on to the juniors. Um, and the newer agents, uh, so the direct oral anticoagulants or what used to be called the novel NOAX. Yeah, uh, NOAX or DOAX, yeah. Yeah, so convention, because they're not novel anymore, is DOAX. <laughs> so uh, they worked uh, by directly inhibiting the coagulation cascade, normally factor 10 or factor 10A, uh, and um, they are usually once or twice daily dosing, uh, no monitoring, give you a consistent level of anticoagulation. Uh, much more favoured by patients and becoming more popular with physicians now, uh, clinicians. Um, non-inferior to vitamin K antagonists in the treatment of PE uh, in all the studies uh, and possibly safer in terms of risk of GI and intracranial bleeding as well. The only problem or caveat to that at the moment is that for the DOEX we don't have any, we have one, but we don't have a lot of uh, available an um, antidotes to those. Um, so reversing anticoagulation can be challenging. Although no one ever thinks of the A and E doctor. Yeah, this. well, no. <laughs> I don't know. I think we do, and we just decide that you give us enough trouble with things <laughs> that we'll uh, we'll let you handle this yeah. one. I know patients love it because they don't have their INR to check. Yes, I mean that's the, that's a major benefit for. And yeah. I know patients say that have, they've said that to me. Yeah. Um, um, but at least with warfarin, you know you've got a reversal agent. Yeah. Whereas. I mean, there are reversal agents available. Uh, they are very expensive monoclonal antibodies, mm. and they don't get given out quite as easily as a bit of vitamin K or some octoplex. Mm. Um, in practice, for the majority of them, the half-life of them is so small yeah. that if you stop the anticoagulant, it has a similar effect to giving a vitamin K to someone who's on warfarin. The time periods are about the same. Sure. Um, it's if they have massive bleeding, there are still things you can do, so blood transfusions, give FFP, give mm. platelets. It reverses them to a certain extent. Mm. I think if I had a P, I know what I would have, but it wouldn't be warfarin. I'd have a uh, direct oral anticoagulant uh, because the risk is relatively low in me of having a bleeding sure. complication. Uh, but I think in your elderly, frequent fallers, people with other problems on dual antiplatelets as well as this, you have to really weigh up the options of what mm. you're going to do. Absolutely, with absolutely. Um, and uh, you know. Some of them do require bridging therapy initially, some of them don't. Mm -hmm. um, conventionally, uh, locally, it tends to be rivaroxaban or apixaban that we use. Um, Dibigitrin is also available and adoxaban is currently being evaluated, sure. so there's plenty of them out there. Um, I don't know if you have any data, Harry, on um, uh, people um, um, re-embolizing yeah, so failure versus, versus yeah. DOAX. Is, is, is there any superiority? So, not that I know of. No. Um, the, 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 the problem with warfarin comes when you have people who have labile INRs. Mm. So if they have INRs are either uh, very high, uh, mm. but their target range or very low, or mm. they spend a lot of time outside their therapeutic window. Yeah. So there's good evidence that people that spend more than 25% of their time within the therapeutic window have a higher risk of thromboembolism. And that comes from a lot of the atrial fibrillation studies. Um, so if they're always running at 1.8, 1.6, when they should be at 2 to 3, then their risk of clotting on then is higher. Um, the the direct oral anticoagulants aren't licensed for use in uh, patients who rethrombose while they're okay. on treatment. So they're not, if you fail treatment with a uh, direct oral anticoagulant, you then have to go on to either subcut heparin or a higher dose of warfarin. Sure. Some people using them off label, they are giving double doses of uh, DOAC um, to those patients, sure. but that is off license. There's not a great deal of evidence okay. to support that. Um, I would say from my experience they have roughly the same thrombosis rate when they're on treatments mm. um, but again I don't know the numbers behind that to be perfectly honest with you okay that's fine and in terms of duration of treatments um, so for all anticoagulants if you have uh, whether it's provoked or unprovoked uh, uh, so whether you've got those risk factors or it's you know out of the blue we're not really sure why you've had it 
Um, so a provoked PE, there's a clear risk factor yeah. behind it. An unprovoked, uh, you shouldn't have had a PE, yeah. but you've had one. Is, is that so? So 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 provoked. So in, so provoked, like you say, is you you've you're, you've been on holiday, you've had a long haul flight, you've got a cancer, you've known to take the oral contraceptive. There's a reason for yeah. you to have it. An unprovoked is really probably those people on the well score who are scoring low mm. uh, and they actually come out with having a PE because they haven't got any risk factors. They may have the clinical science side of it, mm. but they haven't got the risk factors. And um, you're sort of sat there puzzling as to, have they just been unlucky mm. and had a PE or is there something that I'm not picking up? And um, mm. we'll come on to what we need to do about that in a minute. Uh, and so, so if you've got a provoked pulmonary embolism, um, minimum treatment's three months for all pulmonary embolisms. Um, but if you've got a provoking PE and that risk factor has been removed, so you're now mobile, you know, you're not still walking around, going on lots of holidays, you can stop the anticoagulation after three months. Most clinicians would carry it on for six, but there is a good study that's shown anticoagulating for three months versus six months versus 12 months has no effect on outcome. Sure. So actually, if you are somebody who's had three months of treatment for a PE, you've got no persisting risk factors and your risk of bleeding is higher than your average person, then we would probably consider stopping your anticoagulation at three months because there's no evidence sure. that harms you. But on the other hand, if you've had an unprovoked uh, provoked and you've had treatment for three months, um, but you're no at risk of increased bleeding, we may carry you on for six months. So it's three to six months. Okay. But if you definitely have a first episode and it's unprovoked and you've got a low bleeding risk, nearly all of us would carry on your treatment for six months. Okay. If there wasn't a contraindication. And some people would continue continue on lifelong. I was going to say, some, some are on lifelong, aren't they? But that's more often people who have another reason to be on anticoagulation. So they've come in, they've had a PE, but we've also found they're in AF. So okay. we've carried on for the AF stroke yeah. reduction. Or they've had a previous episode of BTE. So if you have two or more, we then recommend lifelong anticoagulation. Okay, okay excellent. And um, so um, what are we moving on to now then? Uh, well, so, so the things I look for when I'm looking at patients in terms of risk of bleeding um, for those people on anticoagulation, whether you decide whether they're a high risk of bleeding or low, mm. um, we haven't got a scoring system like they have in, um, in atrial fibrillation, you know, they use the HASBED score, although it is actually pretty much the same sort of risk factors. So it's mm. age over 75, a previous GI bleed, a previous cerebrovascular accident, either ischemic or hemorrhagic, uh, chronic kidney disease or liver disease, the concomitant administration of antiplatelets. Uh, or if they've got labile INRs or unreliable monitoring, then they would be things that would suggest you've got a higher than normal risk of bleeding. So you would consider three, six months worth of treatment mm. rather than longer treatment. Um, I suppose the next thing that crops up is what do you do for those patients with unprovoked mobilism yeah. and to try and see whether there is anything else that's causing it. So the stats are that 10% of people that have an unprovoked PE will develop a, an occult malignancy within the next five to 10 years. Okay. And actually, that's front-weighted. That actually, the majority of those, so eight out of that, eighty percent of that ten percent, will was about malignancy within the first two years. So you're saying eight percent of people with an unprovoked PE will end up having a malignancy. Okay. So what should we do to see? Do we need to pick that up? You know, should we investigate? Is this the first presentation of a cancer we haven't previously diagnosed? Yeah. So the nice guidelines and the European Society of Cardiology guidelines. Uh, suggest for everybody with a VTE, regardless of whether provoked or unprovoked, who haven't got a history of cancer, they should all have a chest x-ray, a full blood count, a calcium and a liver function test done. They should all have a urinalysis done and they should have a directed physical examination. So for women that would be a breast exam, for men that would be a breast exam and a PR examination for prostate as well. And that's for everybody, no mm. cancer, not looking at provoked or unprovoked. Um, the chest x-ray is for the DVT patients, sure, because um, obviously we'd have done a CPTPA. Yeah. Um, so they don't need an x-ray if they've already had a CTPA because you're doing a second imaging modality that's not quite as accurate Absolutely. as the first. Um, the FBC uh, would be to look for hematological disease, sure. thrombocytosis. Uh, the calcium would be looked for hypercalcemia related to malignancy. Yeah. And the liver function would be to look for derangeabilities from yeah, either METS or a primary, or primary liver. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and interesting, for those people that have got uh, an unprovoked VTE, who are over the age of 40 years, the guidelines say that we should consider a CT abdo pelvis and mammography for women. Okay. So there's a lot of debate here, and I was talking to a couple of my colleagues earlier today about what they do in their clinical practice. And some people do do CT abdo pelvises, some people do ultrasounds. There was a study that looked at CT versus ultrasound for picking up these, and there was no difference between the pickup rates. Um, some people don't 
do either of those things. And I think it's very much clinician based. Mm. Um, I have had colleagues who have done CTs and have picked up four consecutive renal cell carcinomas in patients they had on the ward in four consecutive patients with PE. Um, so I think probably your experience flavors a little bit of what you do. But it's something to know about that if you've got someone over 40 who's got an unprovoked PE, you should be thinking about doing some further tests and they should be consideration of a, some abdominal imaging of some sort. Mm. The guidelines would say consider CT and a mammography for women. Very loosely phrased at consider, isn't it? Yeah, and that's the debate that we all have. Uh, it's very... Because the, the, the pick-up rate is quoted at somewhere between 1% and 5% for everybody with PE. But then if you're saying that 8% of people will develop a malignancy within two years, mm. it's difficult to know what proportion of those are, there, are present at diagnosis yeah. and what develops like two years later. Mm. So this isn't evidence-based. This was just a conversation myself and one of the other research fellows were having earlier. Was, mm. you know, it would be nice to know if there was any evidence to delay the CT scan. So do the initial workup, treat them, but then six months or a year later do a CT and see what you pick up there. There's no evidence for that. That's not that. That's just us postulating and then having a chat. I suppose you just got to sit there in your clinic and, and tell the patient these facts to the yeah. face, I suppose, yeah. to say, you know, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't know about you, Jamie, but I've, we're in an age very much of shared decision-making. Mm. And a part of our job is... Uh, when needed to stepping in and just doing what's needed for the patient you know mm. when they're very sick or they can't make the decisions themselves uh, but a lot of what we do now is communicating uh, the evidence behind mm. what we suggest they do and asking their opinion and doing some shared decision making and I think yeah. these investigations and treatments especially decisions over anticoagulation decisions over scan not to scan decisions over duration they're very much a shared decision making process where you present the risks of doing one thing and the risk of not doing one thing against another and you come up with a decision together and I think, that, sure. I think that's, it's the best way to practice medicine mm. and it's not as paternalistic as it used to be sure can be frustrating sometimes <laughs> um, but within those challenges you sort of learn new skills as well absolutely uh, and then so finally what have, what would you like to talk so, about so uh, last thing for me really is covering pulmonary embolism in pregnancy yeah um, so working on the acute take as a medical reg being a respiratory reg something you guys will see in ED not infrequently will be you know the the pregnant lady or the or the postpartum lady who comes in who's breastfeeding short who, of breath who's short of breath mm. or who's got chest pain or palpitations yeah. or a bit of presyncope and everybody always thinks of PE Mm, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a it's a, a bit of a bit of a minefield because you can't do the things you would traditionally do. So the Wells score for low risk, high risk works pretty well, and it's still validated. The problem is a D dimer is rubbish. It doesn't tell you um, uh, your arm for your ankle, uh, and it's uh, it's it's not validated. It shouldn't be done. Um, and so my approach to these people is uh, taking a good history, doing a risk stratification convincing them that actually doing an x-ray is very little harm to them mm. and their unborn child uh, to rule out everything else. And then if I need to think about what is the best investigation and treatment for them in terms of diagnosing a PE. Um, and so I suppose a chest x-ray um, for the fetus is less than 0.01 millisieverts of radiation. It's very little. So tiny. And for the maternal breast tissue, which is what we really worry about with any radiological intervention in a young lady, is uh, also 0.01 millisieverts. So the chest x-ray is tiny, little. tiny yeah. amount. Um, a VQ scan um, is approximately one millisievert risk to the fetus and about 1.2 millisieverts to the mother. Now the good thing about a VQ scan is you can drop the ventilation side of it and just do the perfusion side in, it in somebody who's got a normal x-ray. And so actually that gives you a 0.6 millisievert risk. So you can further reduce it exactly. when you're dealing with a breastfeeding or, or pregnant lady. Yeah. Exactly. And a CTPA gives you about half a millisievert for the fetus, uh, but between 10 and 70 millisieverts for a woman. And actually that is a significant risk to them in a 20, 30, 40 year old lady yeah. in terms of their lifetime risk of breast cancer. Yeah. The numbers are somewhere between one in 200 and one in 2000 will develop breast cancer as a result of that radiological investigation sure so, so it's not insignificant you know, yeah. if you've got a 1 in 200 risk you've got to scan 200 women to give them one of them breast cancer in the future so it's something to think about mm. uh, out of interest the what they call the danger threshold uh, for a fetus so that would be something that would be fatal to a fetus in terms of radiation is considered to be 50 millisieverts okay so a CTPA at 0.5 is still 100 times mm. less than that dose and a VQ scan at one millisiever is still 50 times less 
Sure. There is a very small theoretical risk for a fetus of a VQ scan of um, future risk of hematological malignancy, specifically leukemia. But it's tiny. It's in the order of ones of hundreds of thousands to Ooh, when they're born and they're of later life. Later life. Yeah. Okay. So it's very very low risk. Sure. Um, so I suppose the the, the the approach is treat a pregnant lady as you treat anyone else. Yeah. Don't do a D-dimer. And uh, the the guidance would suggest bilateral leg ultrasounds. Yeah. But also a VQ scan. Sure. Uh, to then do the diagnosis. And the reason they do bilateral leg ultrasounds is if you've got a DVT in a lady, you're going to treat her the same way. And there's a and just presume they've got a PE if they've got symptoms. I suppose if they're otherwise, if they, again, if we're not in a hemodynamically, if they're hemodynamically stable, it's kind of academic. Yeah. You, you know you've got a DVT, yeah. you may well have a PE. It's still the same treatment. Well, well you're going to anticoagulate them for the duration yeah. of their pregnancy for the three months after their pregnancy, and then you're going to anticoagulate them for any subsequent pregnancy, regardless of whether it's a DVT or PE. Mm -hmm. So there's no benefit mm -hmm. in diagnosing a PE over DVT. Sure. Um, obviously, there's, that's different if they're in sure. a massive PE situation, cardiorespiratory compromise, sure. because the things that then you need to do if they're peri-arrest or arresting is obviously emergency cesarean section. Uh, you'd have to deliver the baby in the placenta and then treat them with thrombolysis mm -hmm. and all the things that come with that. Actually, there may be somebody who needs surgical embolectomy or a different treatment because if you've just done a massive surgery, they're in a high-risk population. Sure. Um, and then the treatment for the pregnant women, as we alluded to already, is you know, no molecular weight heparin, one milligram per kilogram, uh, twice daily based on their booking weights. And you can adjust that treatment based on anti-10A measures. Uh, and um, we don't tend to give things like warfarin because they're teratogenic. In Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then you always need to think about the implications for when the mother's nursing breastfeeding. Sure. of these medications as well sure. and I don't know is, is it something that if a, a mother if a, a woman has a PE during her pregnancy say it's her first pregnancy yeah. would you in clinic advise not getting pregnant again is no, that no, something we're, we're, nev we're, never, we're never advised not no. to we would um, we'd want to know well we wouldn't want to know the, obst the obstetricians would want to know mm. uh, when they got pregnant if they got pregnant because they would be anticoagulated for their subsequent pregnancies so they would be yeah and um, there's, it's not licensed for the direct or anticoagulants at the moment. So they're pretty much left with subcut heparin. Uh, Nine months injecting yourself. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, it's a risk balance, but yeah. the majority you would end up anticoagulating in, in future pregnancies. Excellent. I suppose um, one thing we haven't mentioned is um, um, IVC filters. Yes. I suppose if we're failing with medical, yes. we've got recurrent PEs. Yes. Uh, the good old fashioned inferior vena cava filter. Yes. Still something that we, we do much of? Or? Yeah. Yes and no. Yeah. Um, it's mainly in people who have significant contraindications to pharmacological therapy. Mm. And actually a number of the filters that you put in are actually good at producing PE, reducing PEs, but increase your risk of recurrent DVTs. Okay. And actually the advice is that you should still be anticoagulated on the filters anyway. Mm. So the situations you put them in is if somebody's just had surgery, They've got a lower limb DVT, you diagnose them with PE, they can't be anticoagulated because they've had a triple A repair and you end up, well, triple A repair is probably a bad choice because you wouldn't put a filter in, but you know, they've had some sort of, they've had a hemicolectomy for cancer yeah. within a couple of days, they've got a PE, you'd think about doing a filter to prevent their risk of a large PE and the mortality associated with that, but they probably still get worsening problems with DVT. You have to eventually either retrieve that device mm -hmm. or anticoagulate them. Uh, sure. And there are problems with device migration depending on the site that you place them within the um, the venous, the, the IVC or the SVC, when they migrate, there can be problems with um, clotting and thrombosis and lack of venous and arterial return. Um, so, so they're not in and of themselves a solution for all ills. Mm. Um, we've seen them used. They're often considered in difficult cases. Um, they are what they are. Yeah. It's normally torture hematologist, respiratory physician, mm -hmm. uh, and, and liaise with the interventional radiologist. And between that group of people, sure. there's usually a consensus on who we should and shouldn't be doing those things to. Um, thank you very much, Harry. You're welcome. I think it's fair to say this is an absolute minefield. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's somewhere that we need to know the data and we need to know what we need to do. And if in doubt, refer and talk to a friend yes, or a senior. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, these are these are bits we can't really cover today, but um, one of um, one of the respiratory consultants here, Dr. Lejeune, yeah. recently gave a talk here in A and E. Uh, there's all manner of, of new areas of research looking at age-related D-dimers, so that actually the decade of your life, your D-dimer will go up naturally. So yeah. maybe we should be looking at that. That's yeah. something else that we're, we're looking for the future. 
um, the use of interventional radiology standardised in these young people with submassive PEs as a way of preventing pulmonary hypertension in future. Yep. I mean, people listening to this who may still be at med school, this is going to be something that's going to change within their careers. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. It's something we need to stay current. Well, there's, 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 there's an expanding field of um, uh, research within acute pulmonary embolism, but also chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension. Uh, you know, the guys local to us at Sheffield, there's uh, new and wonderful treatments that are coming out all the time. You know, yeah. um, embolectomies uh, and uh, catheter-related treatments for pulmonary hypertension and CTEF. And it's just, it's, it's just an expanding field of research. And uh, it's, uh, with the age of personalised medicine, like you say, um, there's going to be lots of developments coming up, so mm. it's a hot topic. It's a common presentation. It is potentially a life-threatening presentation. It's something you've all got to know about. Yeah. Thank you so much, Harry. You're welcome. Thank you very much, listeners. Bye-bye. That was the Take Orally PE podcast. Be sure to check out takeorally.com, and you can also find us on both Facebook and Twitter. For more information about research and educational opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine, and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.